0: Greetings, peasants. Welcome back to the Knights and Nerds podcast. This is Tim. I'm the Dungeon Master, and I want to say thank you very much for listening to this. Today, I am talking with Ryan Howard from the Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard podcast. If you've listened to the last uh, campaign, then you've more than likely heard him at least once. But uh, he's got a great uh, podcast that he does, he's also on Twitch. Um, I don't have a good enough internet connection to be on Twitch, otherwise I'd be watching him all the time. But uh, you should definitely check him out. And uh, today he and I are talking about uh, campaign settings and creating your own setting. We do venture into uh, a lot of spoiler territory for this. Uh, So if you are not wanting the upcoming campaign uh, ruined, well I don't want to say ruined, but if you don't want to know exactly what's happening... And want to be surprised as the you know as the campaign unfolds, then you can maybe skip over this one. But we are gonna be talking, you know, just some sort of general uh do's and don'ts and I mean not like I'm an authority, but he's he's he knows more about what he's doing than I do. But uh so I'm I'm the benefactor of, of his experience. Anyways, I hope you find it useful and don't forget a few of the following things. Uh, We're doing a giveaway right now, so you could win a gift card to the Nerdy Chicken Shop of Curiosities, nerdychicken.ca. All you have to do is be on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Find our giveaway post, tag three of your friends, or tag three of your enemies. Either way. Uh, And you'll be entered into the giveaway. And we will, and I think, announce the winner on February 3rd. Oh my goodness, that's like next week. Speaking of next week, we're doing we're putting out a couple more episodes. I'm having a discussion with a friend of mine, Andrew Kolb. He created the Neverland campaign setting. Uh, he and Ryan are actually also did a uh, a more in depth discussion about Neverland, and you should listen to that um, uh, definitely. Uh, but he's he's also going to talk to me about creating sort of a, a campaign setting because he did he created. He literally wrote the book on Neverland, which is uh, you know a gorgeous, um, a gorgeous setting book that you should check out if you're if you're into that. Uh, so that's next week, and also uh, episode zero point five, where I talk to Kevin, Matt, and Sarah again. This is after I've sort of refined some of my ideas for the setting, uh, and just sort of go over some some things with them before we dive into the game. Uh, but for now, enjoy the conversation, my conversation, with Ryan Howard from Roland Bones with Ryan Howard. Ladies and gentlemen, you know him, you love him. He's more articulate, more handsomer, and better with grammar than I am, Ryan Howard of Roland Bones with Ryan Howard is joining me on our inaugural episode uh the actually the second inaugural episode the first one is lost to time uh because I don't know how to use a computer properly and uh the first recording we did on these topics he said some life-changing insightful things and I wish I could remember what they were but he's joining me again to talk about them and uh Ryan so thank you so much for uh sitting down with me again today
1: absolutely it's always good to sit down with you. I don't know about this handsomer thing. Uh, people don't usually put me on top of the handsomer uh, leaderboard there, but I appreciate it nonetheless.
0: <laughs> well, as one bearded man to another, let me say, you're easy on the eyes. Ladies and gentlemen, he is. It's the truth. And uh, if you don't know, uh, if, you've, if you're sort of to like just coming into this podcast now, Um, Ryan has joined me on a number of episodes, uh, in the past. He has his own, uh, podcast, uh, Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, which everybody should at this point be listening to. And if you're not, then you're dead to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, so. Absolutely. We have your names on a list. And it's not the good kind of list you want to be on either. We're going to talk about a number of things today. We're going to talk about sort of like how to go about crafting a setting. So we'll be talking about setting and world building and probably plot and and how that interacts with with characters. There's gonna be a, a a wide breadth of topics, but this is this is Ryan is is always a great sounding board for me because he's got such great ideas and is is incredibly creative we first chatted in september of 2020 when i was really just at the beginning stages of planning out things now i've i've advanced a little bit in where i am with with this campaign still very much there's still a lot of a lot of gray there's more gray than anything else and so i think it's still valuable to have this this conversation um hopefully what anyone gets out of this is maybe a few tips or pointers on what to do and what not to do when you're starting out with your own campaign. Um, and for me, the setting is a big part of it. But oddly enough, uh, in my opinion, like or at least the way that I approach it, it's never really the, the first thing that I start with. Now, uh, Ryan, I don't know about you, but maybe some people running a game will say, I want to do a Western or I want to do a Gothic horror uh, type of Uh, game and they and so they they pick their setting first and then they start back and then they you know that's their sort of jumping off point for me i think of like a plot hook and and probably a monster those are my starting points and then and then i have to sort of answer the question of a setting um so like when you're thinking about a campaign like where does setting fit in at what point in the in the creation process does it does it fit in for you
1: so I actually kind of find myself in uh, the, the the former camp, where uh, where I'll think of I want to run. Usually, it's a genre rather than a setting. I want to run, you know, a a space game or a a western game, a a noir game, a superhero game, or you know, like a, a gritty sword and sorcery game, and then from there. Uh, you know, I start thinking about plots. That's usually where monsters come in. Uh, but a lot of uh, I, I do think a lot of people, especially in gaming, think that way, because when you have that thought, it's usually associated with a certain rule set. Um, you know, like if if you want to run a Western game, you're probably going to be reaching for uh, you know Savage Worlds and Deadlands, something like that. You know, sci-fi. It depends on what kind of sci-fi you want to run. Maybe a Star Wars game. Maybe some one of the cyberpunk uh, rule sets. But I, I do find myself generally thinking about kind of the, um, the mood or the uh, the genre. and with that comes the setting oftentimes.
0: So I find that really interesting because I, um, like looking back on it, the way that I have approached it with, with this campaign that I'm working on now and the previous one, I started with a a problem, which I could also sort of interchangeably call the plot, and and sort of the creatures or monsters that I wanted to use, and typically those are ones that I haven't been able to use before. Oh yeah. I don't know if I mentioned this already, but there's gonna be a lot of spoiler talk here. Picking the genre which really can inform and narrow down your choices of of setting, like that's that's a hugely impactful choice to make because i think a lot of a lot of writers a lot of storytellers and when i say writers i mean like anybody who's writing a campaign uh including me intimidated by a blank page and so you need to sort of confine yourself you need to give yourself borders um what's what would you say like the benefits are of picking your genre first and then going from there
1: uh, so what I find is when I have a genre in mind, like you said, there there's some kind of parameter set. Now, when you go problem first, the way that, that you like to do it, those parameters are a lot tighter and you probably get a more focused uh, product that, that ends up on that blank page because you know the general problem that the heroes will have to set out to solve. It's almost like, Pulling a specific Lego set off of a shelf, or uh, you know, opening a specific toolbox, or you know, I, I like to paint. You know, you you take a look at a specific set of paints that are built around, you know, creating a certain look for uh, a given miniature, and that's that's really what you have when you when you pick the genre or or pick the setting first is. You, you've got all of these tools at your disposal and you know, you know, the, these are the different directions I can go in with this particular story. Uh, so you you do have those fences. However, the fences are out a little bit wider uh, and it may end up being to your detriment. I know I often fall into the trap of uh, just kind of going down all the different rabbit holes I could possibly go down in a given setting. Uh, when I, when I work that way, but you do have a little bit bigger of a sandbox to play in when you start with, this is the setting, here are all of the different things that could potentially happen. And so there's a lot more kind of room to explore ideas you might not initially be open to, but the more you think about it, the more you pull on that thread, the more it seems to, uh, to capture your imagination.
0: I think that's interesting that you that you say that because i I've been finding as I've been working on this new campaign that um starting with the problem and the chief antagonist it really leaves a lot of work still to be done with the setting and with the last campaign I find, like I felt that the world was constructed to tell one specific story not to say that I couldn't like have continued the campaign after that with a different different problems. but it was very much geared to one thing and, and not really um, conducive to a sort of sandbox approach where it sounds like choosing the setting first helps helps you sort of automatically sort of fill in the the gaps, uh, sort of fill in a lot of the details that that I'm having to figure out still. Like, you know, who who are the prominent NPCs in the world? What's the system of government? Um, whereas if you pick the setting up front, like a Victorian type of Gothic setting, you know that you've got, you know, various, you know, aristocratic classes and you've got, you know, you've already got a, a sort of those things, those, those boxes ticked. Um, and also because you mentioned Savage Worlds, uh the the episode that you did talking to oh, I can't remember those chaps their their names escape me but uh they talked a lot about Savage Worlds and I was like this sounds amazing and I really want to play that sometime
1: was it the crew from the Wild Die podcast
0: yes it was they sound like a lot of fun
1: mhm oh yeah yeah those guys are great
0: Pro, let's let's say plot and like your central plot hook your adventure idea Let's say we've got that figured out. The world for me is still feels like very blank and artificial and lifeless until we start putting those like noteworthy NPCs in there, and then the world starts to take on shape. I don't know that I really have a good method for creating interesting NPCs, but like story is all about characters. So do you have any what you might call a system or or any sort of regular way that you go about in like building in npcs or even just like historical figures into your into your games.
1: Yeah, so usually npcs are kind of born out of necessity. I will start a game with some npcs in mind that I think will end up being important for the greater story. And inevitably, every dungeon master who has any degree of experience knows exactly where this is going. Inevitably, the NPCs that I think will be important and, you know, will provide the players with uh, a lot of great moments, those guys will be cast aside or even outright hated. And the players will end up latching on to someone you created uh, just off the cuff because they needed someone to talk to at a given point in time.
0: Yes, I've actually very much, uh, I was actually just thinking about that um, because I think the most prominent NPC from our first campaign was a stray dog, which was a random occurrence and uh, ended up surviving till the end where one player character <laughs> did not. Um which I was not expecting, mm-hmm. so yeah, I, I understand hundred percent. I was looking at some additional ways of like doing the world building for this story, um, for this campaign, and I had, I had looked up some. I, I don't know what you would call them. It's like a questionnaire or a survey in terms of like trying just to answer these questions. Um, and the first question that I had, uh, that really sparked something was like what was the most recent natural disaster? And I was like, ooh, well, that's interesting. A volcano was like the first thing that I thought of is that it was kind of boring. So I thought of like a, maybe like an asteroid or a meteorite. Um, And then that will lead into something that we'll talk about um, in a bit. But I've also heard of people making maps first. And then as they sort of fill in map details with various things like, oh, it'd be cool to have this here um or like what's going on over here. They they do some world building that way, but actually visualizing it first and then and then ascribing things happening in the world to the map as they make it. I don't know if you've tried either of those two things or what your what your thoughts are on them.
1: I mean when it comes to kind of filling out the world, um I, I know a lot of people a lot of people gravitate towards Kind of the, the, the muse that inspires their creativity. So if you're someone who's very artistically inclined as far as you know drawing and stuff like that, maybe you're a really good cartographer. I can definitely see you know, making the map first being a great strategy for you. I am someone I, I can competently use uh, Incarnate. That is my favorite map making tool. It's great for anyone who hasn't used it, but okay. if I just sat down at Incarnate and went, I'm going to make a map for a game world that I have not done any work for, I would not even know where to begin uh so So I find a lot of my uh a lot of my best creation comes from looking at things from a character level, and I imagine that you maybe have a, a, a similar process coming from, you know, kind of the, the background of a fantasy author. When, when you have an idea like you have, you, you knew who your big bad was going to be. At that point, it's very easy, or easy is probably the wrong word, but it's, it's a natural step in the process to then go, if these uh, circumstances are happening based on the machinations of this uh, ne'er-do-well, How is this going to affect everyone kind of from the top down? Like, if this is, if it's an evil king, how is his plan to dominate this other kingdom? Going to affect his advisors his uh you know his lords that are subservient to him, his soldiers how is, does it affect the peasants? what do the people in the kingdom that he's targeting think of this? what's their previous all of these questions come immediately to mind when you have the idea of uh evil king sarkon the one eyed wants to Go over there and conquer Lyodia because they are, uh, you know, right there on the coast, and it'll open trade routes for them. You, immediately, things are are popping into your head as you come up with these ideas uh, based on just this notion of what the bad guy is going to do. So, a lot of that is is kind of how my creative process works. I've never really worked through any of these. Uh, Uh, like questionnaires or anything like that it's it's often just been a giant burst of creative energy because i have not learned how to ration out and uh you know draw upon a constant well of creative energy it just kind of happens all at once
0: the the questionnaire that i mentioned actually didn't get past the first question of of the natural disaster because I had this idea about um, meteorites being essentially uh, solidified uh, magic. And I had sort of at the beginning of all of this decided I'd like to try a low magic setting where things were where magic is a bit less common and I think I chose that because the the last crew had just this wacky abundance of really powerful magic items. So I wanted like getting a magic item to be really special in this. And if we're able to talk about crafting a bit later maybe we can you know hone in on on a, a player character making their own item and what impact that might have. But so my idea with this low magic setting was that, you know, there's there are spellcasters and actually, this entire party, um, everybody has their own spellcasting ability. The the warlock from the patron, paladin from uh, from his deity, and then the druid who's an eladrin has magic by virtue of being from the Feywild. But people learning to cast magic uh, by study and by using components would be the most uh, out of the ordinary and probably the least common um have you run a game or been a part of a game where magic is a little bit less common and if yes what what did you what did you think about it
1: the closest i've come to uh like running a low magic game would be the dark sun game that i was running for a while um and even describing that as low magic is not really doing it justice cuz dark sun's more of a world where magic is everywhere and it's abundant but it's very very dangerous um, now that being said I recently had a barn burner of a conversation with uh, Hanker Infernal uh, aka Brandish Gilhelm uh, depending on which uh, pen name you guys know him under um, We we talked for a long time about you know what it means to be in a low magic setting or you know what it means to be in a setting like dark Sun. Um, and And one conclusion that we came to, it's it's interesting that you mention this because you've got three characters in your in your party who are magic users, and one of them is a uh, a divine magic user. One of the conclusions that we came to is a low magic setting is a setting in which the gods are either distant or maybe even not there or not listening. So in a setting like this, a paladin would have to be an extremely rare thing. Because uh, you, if you think about it from like the, the perspective of Robert E. Howard uh, in, in the Conan books, you know, Conan prays to Krom, but he has no idea if Krom's even listening and basically feels comfortable saying, yeah, to hell with you anyway. So that, that seems to be kind of the common man's attitude towards the divine in these low magic worlds. So when it comes to, you know, something like that, uh, to, to someone being so interconnected with a god that they bestow power upon them, and then on the flip side, with your warlock being able to form a pact with some kind of extraplanar being or maybe even a god, depending on which patron they took, uh, in order to get power, those those are things that will not be commonplace. Uh, even if you know, like wizards are. Super rare as well. Uh, the the ability to bind a being into giving you power, or to form a bond with a being to gain that kind of power, will be awe inspiring or absolutely terrifying, depending on how your players end up using their power.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe when you hit up your next family reunion, you can get a definitive answer as to whether or not Crom uh, exists. <laughs>
1: In my immediate family, I am the only one who cares that we are actually uh, related to Robert E. Howard. I'm, I'll have to actually go to like the Robert E. Howard Society to to have that conversation.
0: <laughs> well, that's that's a really interesting observation. I, I I'm not experienced enough with with those types of um, of stories uh, to have. Uh, I guess made that conclusion that um, that the gods might like the Pantheon might just be imagined. And I suppose it's entirely possible that this paladin thinks that he has a divine source of magic, but maybe he's getting confused on the source.
1: Yeah, I can, I can only imagine kind of that, that twist where your, your paladin, especially if they go like super lawful good and, and end up doing a lot of good, you know, they, they, come face-to-face face with the being that they thought was, you know, this this just, divine, all-good, all-knowing, omniscient god and find out, like, it's a demon or something like that, that... Talk about a twist. <laughs> but even if, you know, you and... Even if you and the player decide, you know, we, we want this god to actually exist, to be real... um With player characters, you can do the whole you are the chosen one thing because ultimately the people at the table are the chosen ones. They're the special ones in the game because they're, of all the characters in this potential world, they're the ones who are actually being controlled by human beings with free will and agency. So being the chosen one in an RPG is not as... uh, Eye rolling and and groan inducing as it is in a book, a movie, or a video game.
0: I haven't I haven't worked in a a prophecy, um, in at least a prophecy involving the the player characters directly as being chosen. I did kind of think that that any like clerics and paladins would be, you know, very. You know not as rare as wizards but it would be it would be you know out uh, certainly um not a common thing for anyone to be special enough to have a bond um with a god but um um yeah that's interesting I actually hadn't considered um messing around with the the source of magic before now um so th- maybe that is something I'll keep in my back pocket what else okay so as part of this low magic setting, there are these uh meteor showers that happen every few generations. So, um not guaranteed to happen every lifetime. Um but they're like, uh, you know, meteorological events where for, you know, perhaps days or weeks there are these uh, scattered objects that uh, that fall from the heavens and they are of varying size and potency but they are solidified magic and you know anyone who gets their hands on this becomes very very powerful uh if they can harness the the ability uh or sorry harness the the power innate to these objects so uh i guess it's not too dissimilar from finding just a regular old magic item but it gives it gives a certain amount of freedom to the players because they may find a a small shard and decide to you know crush it up and make a bunch of healing potions with it or they may they may decide to do something else with it and i'm i'm sure that they're going to decide to try something that i haven't thought of and as time goes on this low magic setting is going to transform into into something where there's like a bit of an arms race happening for these, for these magical shards. I just, I I just don't know what I'm getting into with this. So, um, do you have any thoughts on potential pitfalls that I that I might be setting up for myself in terms of? Now, I, I should also mention that it's going to be made pretty evident to the party, or that getting getting their hands on these. Uh, is important to stop the antagonist from obtaining them because the the antagonist will need them for um, for its own aims. Um, but as they sort of accumulate this power, you know they're going to become more and more conspicuous and have more and more enemies, more people after them. Um, so I'm just aside from aside from that happening, I, I I I'm not quite sure what to expect my players to do with these things you
1: know with something like this in a low magic setting um and and this may even be a step harsher than than you might want to go with your players but in a low magic setting it seems to me that kind of the best way to make these falling stars important is to say the only way you can get magic items the only way that a smith or, you know, the the three artificers that exist in this world, the three people capable of making magical weapons, they can only do it with this material. So when it hits the surface of the world that you guys are on, everyone and their brother is going to be on top of that thing looking for it. Some people might be looking to do some good, but there's going to be a lot of people who are looking to do some serious damage with this stuff. Um, and there, there's always... In a way, it's it's almost not D&D unless someone can, you know, like at the end of a dungeon, find some ancient magical weapon. But I, I do think you could bake into the lore that the only way these magical weapons are made is through, you know, the, these fallen stars, these these meteors that hit the earth only every so often. So that's why magic items, healing potions, all that stuff are so much rarer than they normally would be. That's why everyone's excited about these, because, you know, legend says that only when uh, the stars fall from the heavens, only then can the greatest of smiths create the mightiest of weapons that can subjugate the masses for centuries and centuries. And they're like, Oh, we need to get this before that guy over there gets it.
0: That is, um, wow. You, you really articulated something that I was thinking, but hadn't, hadn't been able to put into words yet, but yeah, uh, I think the scarcity of magical weapons is, I mean, that's the perfect reason, um, that there aren't a ton of them just laying around because of this very um, precious resource, when these events do happen, uh, it is going to be sort of a, as you mentioned, like a, a like a, you know, a free for all almost. Um, now, in terms of, well, I guess one of the things I talked about was potentially implementing a crafting system into this, and I don't know if this is too much of a tangent away from world building, but this, in terms of running this this type of game. Like what are you, what do you think about having the players do it and I can immediately see a problem that none of them have any experience with this at all. <laughs> and so how would they know how to do it versus I think the the maybe the more logical thing would be you have to to undertake this arduous journey to this NPC who may or may not be alive and may or may not help you.
1: Which which of the two paths do you think that you would that you would take so i am someone who loves the idea and i've tried to play this character before and it ended up being a little bit of a weird thing just because 5e is not a good system if you want to have a lot of crafting uh crafting in 5e it's not something the game does well i'll say um I, I love the idea of being that, you know, warrior who also knows how to forge, also knows how to make his own armor and swords and stuff like that. So, you know, you you are a battlesmith. And now that the artificer class is out there, that's a lot easier to do than it was when I was trying to do it. But there's also something really cool about that armorer character from the first season of The Mandalorian. You know, what when when Mando gets the Beskar, he has to travel back to this planet and go find, uh, you know, the, the woman in the Mandalorian conclave who actually knows how to make Beskar armor. And that's an opportunity for you to have one of those really cool NPCs. Uh, and it's also an opportunity for one of my favorite, you know, kinds of characters, that being the, uh, The grizzled old hermit who doesn't really like people, uh, you know, doesn't doesn't get to do his job or ply his trade very often. Usually, uh, you know, the people who come around, he doesn't see them as worthy of, you know, the, the stuff that he can make because, you know, he he's he's built sword he's made swords for the best of them he he's forged swords that have uh you know slain great dragons and conquered armies in the hands of one person so you uh adventurer who found a rusty sword out in the middle of the wilderness you're gonna come to him and say hey can you knock the rust off of this and and sharpen it up for me get out of here that that is something that's very cool and very i i think very fun and you could almost build an entire quest line around the players maybe find this guy before they find any of the meteor pieces and you know they're they're looking to upgrade their gear and he's like well I'm not going to talk to you unless you go find this stupidly impossible thing that you're never going to find. Uh so good luck. You're probably going to die, but you know, hey, if you bring it to me, we can do some business. I I think you could get some some good mileage out of that storyline.
0: The problem that I was having conceptually with that is if you have if you have a setting where you have like different um maybe maybe a number of different lords who are all sort of variously flawed um where where do these like these craftsmen would almost you know if magic items can can influence the outcome of a war these craftsmen would be some of the most sought after and important people in the land and you know it would be interesting if they were maybe they're their own faction and they uh because i was like well who are they loyal to does each lord have one in their service or um maybe they're only maybe they don't swear loyalty to anyone and maybe they commune with higher powers and and sort of meditate on whether or not they should make these things or maybe it's some sort of weird uh you know competition between them that they see who can make the most outlandish and powerful magic weapon <laughs> Um, so th- those were the questions that I was grappling with. I don't know, um, what your thoughts on that would be.
1: Yeah, there, there are a lot, again, there's a lot of great storylines and a lot of storylines that I love that can come out of any combination of those things. You know, obviously there's the great, uh, you know, a- anyone who can actually make something of these, uh, meteorite pieces, Uh, They all work for kings and lords and barons. They're not going to talk to you unless you swear an oath of fealty to whatever monarch controls them. Maybe with the exception of this weird old hermit we found in this village who, you know, says, you know, those whippersnappers don't know anything. I trained all of them. And let me tell you. They don't know what they're doing. That's crap work that they're doing. If you, you know, I, I don't even want to talk to you, but if you can bring me some meteorite, I'll, I'll show you what real craftsmanship is. That's that's a cool, kind of a, a, a worn chestnut of an idea, but definitely one that that I think people respond well to. But getting back to, you know, what I was saying earlier about the the armorer from the Mandalorian, you could very easily build almost a religious order out of these artificers and, you know, their, their trade is their worship. They have some kind of forge God that they believe maybe sends these meteors to the earth so that, uh, you know, they might serve his purposes and, and spread his message to the people and they just so happen to be largely doing business with, uh, you know, Kings and, and knights and people like that, because that's who can afford to, you know, find the pieces and, and get them to these craftsmen having, you know, some kind of connection to this like cult of artificers Or, you know, religious order of artificers, depending on how you want to portray them or or how they end up looking to the players, that could also be very interesting. Because, again, you know, that if the players want, you know, their their awesome magic swag, that's not going to be so easy to come by in this world, uh, they might have to stay on the good side of this uh, crazy religious order that wants them to do some pretty dangerous and kind of odd things.
0: That sounds like very compelling. That's like, that's almost like an entire chapter of, of, of the campaign unto itself is, is trying to essentially win the approval of these weirdos. And I think you've also hit upon something else that um, I wanted to mention briefly in, in the, context of world building is to base like look to things that you like to for ideas and it's not it's not um, it's not theft it's homage uh, I mean there's no there's there's very few truly original ideas anymore and everything else most things are a different version of something else uh, and there's no shame in using th- proper like th- things from media and properties that you are are fond of that interest you as as a as a jumping off point it's uh i think that's the basis of of inspiration i don't know if you've built this into any of your games that you've run but having like uh having a an npc like that uh very very useful npc and very valuable presents the opportunity for training and I think Xanathars may touch briefly on training. I know that they tried to redo crafting, but still, in a very not in a very like the crafting system in the in the Dungeon Master's Guide and Xanathars not one that I really want to use, to be honest. But um, have you have you done training with any of the games that you've run before?
1: Uh, so I haven't done training um i'm I'm currently looking through uh tasha's cauldron because I just recently got that so i'm I'm not sure if that's something that might have been potentially added in this book um it it doesn't look like it is um but yeah i I think you know with, with something like this if you have highly skilled people who know this craft there there's always going to be potential for players to say you know i really want to join this group uh you know maybe out of character because they want to be able to make their own stuff rather than being completely dependent on this order who's gonna have them go cut the tooth out of a sleeping gold dragon every time they, you know, need a dagger to be made. Um, They'll just be like, you know what, if I I need a gold dragon's tooth, I'll, you know, get it on my own terms, rather than having to do this errand for this weirdo. But in-game, maybe they're, like, you know, really taken with the cause that these particular uh, priests of this uh, artificer order are into, or you know, they they become true believers of a sort. Or they're just completely fascinated with the the process of making these items. Um, so with that in mind, I, I think there is plenty of room for some kind of training system. Um whether it's just, you know, if you spend a certain amount of hours With this group, you can gain proficiency with, you know, Smith's tools. And if you have, you know, proficiency with Smith's tools and you have access to the proper materials and the recipe, you can forego material cost associated typically with making a magic item because you have the material here. You make a roll. It takes you a certain amount of time and you are able to create these items.
0: I had done a quick search online to see what people were doing um if they're not using the the 5e suggestions for uh crafting and um you know uh, recipes were brought up so essentially saying you, you need to have the the sort of raw materials so if you're making a sword you need to have the you know you know this this steel to make the sword. Um, you need to have uh, magic and a essentially like uh, you know sort of a a determining ingredient to 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 give give it its actually what it does um so if you were to say have a a, a sword and the i guess normally it would be like residuum or if you're you know you have a wizard you can imbue it with wizardly magic and a you know the the testicles of a frost giant you know you get a you get like a a a sword that does frost damage or something like that with with the player characters taking like potentially taking this on because you know it'd be a shame if anything were to happen to that beloved npc that does all this work for them very well would be the the possibility to introduce negative effects like almost like a curse where where it it behaves in an unexpected way um not really
1: in a a very unhelpful way yeah and i think i think one way that you could potentially handle this uh you know there's a great tool uh kind of within the sorcerer uh ecosystem of dungeons and dragons that i feel like fits very well with the idea of you're you're mucking around with materials that you don't really know anything about uh and that is the wild magic table uh i i think it'd be you know pretty simple to say you know if you bungle this particular crafting roll or any crafting roll made with uh you know this this fallen star material uh roll a d100 or roll you know whatever it is Uh, depending on the wild magic table you use. I know there's one that has like a thousand entries that one of my friends used one time. Oh my God. Um, (laughs) Fun fact, I've talked about this before. They ended up flooding Waterdeep because of that uh, wild magic table. (laughs) Aptly named Waterdeep. There's some crazy stuff that happens on just even the the basic wild magic table, because you can cast a fireball on yourself. Or you can turn yourself into a potted plant, you can age up 10 years, age down 20 years, turn yourself blue, not be able to speak, and every time you try, bubbles come out of your mouth. There's all kinds of crazy stuff that happens on that table, Uh, so you could very easily have some great, fun, uh, potentially game-changing consequences that happen because of trying to craft with this material.
0: Yes, uh, I am going to have to find that uh, list of a thousand effects, or, or however many it happens to be, because uh, that sounds too good to pass up. I can hear you looking for it now. <laughs> so one of the other things that I wanted to, to, to talk about, because I, one of the jobs of a dungeon master is to anticipate what your players are, are going to do. And with the... Uh, with the Aladrin player character, the Aladrin druid, uh, hailing from the Feywild, um, I would not have put the Feywild into this campaign as a place were it not for that player making that choice. But now that that choice has been made, um, you know, like, like many other dungeon masters, I sort of have to, to like backfill the Feywild into, into the setting and... Unfortunately, the Feywild sounds like it would be have so much potential in terms of of a a place for the player characters to go, but there's very little actually about it in in 5th edition. I think it was only introduced in 4th and combined a few different other planes. So, I think that there's some stuff on the the DM's Guild where people have made their own uh, sort of setting resources for the Feywild, I haven't. I haven't had a chance to look at any of them, and I wouldn't want to sort of use those in the podcast without uh, without permission. Which leaves me with the task of, of trying to think of something to do. So, just real quick, like the Feywild, according to Fifth Edition, it's a it's a mirror of the Material Plane. You know, it's very beautiful, as equally dangerous as it is beautiful, though. It's, it's a, you know, innately magical. There's, you know, pixies and fairies and satyrs and, and dryads, but also Fomorians and displacer beasts and red caps and other horrible things. So it's, uh, it's, it's a place of extremes. So it's, it seems to be presenting me with the challenge of, of incorporating this setting when there's very little to go on that's pre-written. So, have you have you any prior experience with the Feywild? I think in the Dungeon Master's guide there's some optional rules about memory loss and time loss. And I think that's that's probably the bulk of what they give you. Only only that um features in the material plane are sort of Exaggerated and accentuated in the Feywild, so like a mountain in the Material Plane might be like uh, crystalline skyscrapers in the in the Feywild. So, have you any experience with with running that that sort of like parallel setting before?
1: Uh, so, the closest that I've come, one of the actually the game I'm playing in right now. Uh, is using the Shadowfell, which is a different but somewhat similar concept of a parallel reality that touches our own. Um, But the Feywild, one of the best uh, kind of examples of something similar would be uh, for anyone who's a Dresden Files fan out there, the Never Never from the Dresden Files is kind of what I picture when it comes to the Feywild. It, you know, it directly borders our own reality. The the border is thin enough that it can be permeated by a sufficiently trained magic user or, you know, someone from the Feywild. And the main difference between our world and the Feywild, besides kind of the uh, exaggerations that you mentioned would be that the Feywild is, uh, you know, it'd be a lot more naturalistic than our own world. I I can't imagine there being any kind of paved roads or, you know, like stone structures built in the Feywild. It, It would be a lot more natural paths. And, you know, if you come across a city, it's a city that's maybe built into the side of a mountain like ancient Petra, or it's a city in the trees, like uh, you know, Kashyyyk from Star Wars, and it'll all depend on kind of you know who lives in this particular city, or you know who whose territory is this, you know what you see around you. But I do like the idea of it being a uh, kind of a sinister reflection of the world around you so you know you'll you have this big open meadow in the material world if you go over to the feywild the meadow is still there but you know as you take a step into the meadow a giant beetle flies up out of the ground and immediately tries to devour you because you've entered his hunting grounds
0: i may have mentioned this during our first uh chat that that if only we could recover it. That the Feywild, to me, like, I don't know, to anyone who's seen the movie Annihilation, uh, seems to be, like, I would almost compare it to that, where you have these moments of peace and tranquility, and you're seeing these, these, you know, young deer with, you know, they still have the, like, the velvet on their antlers, and there's, you know, flowers growing out of them, and and then you have an alligator with, uh, you know, eight sets of teeth and it's horrifying. Um, so I think that's, that's probably the closest comparison that I've, I've seen, at least in, in, in film. I think Patrick Rothfuss uh, the wise man's fear deals with like, has as something like a, of a Feywild equivalent in, in one part of the book. It's filled with, um, you know, filled with a, uh, just so many possibilities, and I think what what I may uh, do is just quickly sort of make a make a roster of all the the creatures in the Monster Manual and the the other books that are noted as being Fey creatures, and and maybe read up on the lore of them because, as you said, they're they're all very naturalistic, and there's there's not f- fewer trappings of of like quote unquote civilization. The, as as the players would know it, um, also a little bit of a challenge with having one one person who's innate to the Fey of Wild and then two two humans, so it'd be it'd be interesting to see how you would handle things like memory loss or time loss.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure uh, any creature that grew up in the Feywild or any uh, Eladrin in this case who, who lived in the Feywild would probably not be very uh, trustful of just kind of random things that walked up. Like, say you have that situation uh, like you had in uh, the last game where, you know, the, the players randomly encounter a dog. Uh, to the human players, it's, oh, look at the dog. But to the Eladrin, it's, you know, stay back. That, that's a blink dog. It could be a blink dog or, you know, that could be some kind of uh, illusion put up by a creature that's going to psychically manipulate us. You know, maybe their first reaction when seeing a random beast cross their path, even if it's a completely harmless beast in the real world, is, you know, they're going to brandish a weapon at it.
0: Yeah, I think even in real life, like I've seen John Carpenter's The Thing. I'm not trustful of any dogs that just randomly come up to me. Like, get away. You could be the thing.
1: <laughs> Give me the flamethrower. Yeah.
0: Yes, especially if you, any listeners, take heed. If you are at an Arctic or Antarctic research station and a dog comes up to you being chased by Norwegians, you get that flamethrower. So. Just to just to sort of tie this Feywild back to um, the rest of the setting, we have a low magic setting, and we have the the presence of another plane that is just absolutely saturated with magic. So, if you were a, a sort of power hungry or villainous um, being, how would you how would you think that they would view? The Feywild, like to me, it seems that that is like low-hanging fruit to have someone say, you know, what we should invade. <laughs> we should invade because they probably have tons of magic that we can take for ourselves.
1: It's definitely low-hanging fruit to say, you know, we we need to storm the Feywild and uh you know provide them with foreign aid or whatever it is that you would use as the pretense for invading the the Feywild. um One thing that I think a a truly shrewd leader would do is make pacts with beings within the Feywild. You mentioned the Four More. They're probably a good candidate for something like this because, you know, one thing that fairies are known for in uh, all of the literature that they show up in is kidnapping children. So... You know, maybe there are children or even, you know, adults uh, that go missing every now and then. They just, they disappear randomly. No one ever knows how to find them. You know, there's probably the odd fairy kidnapping uh, just in the traditional sense of, you know, this... Fairy sees a kid walking alone, and you know offers them something, and then takes them away to the the Fey Wilds, never to be seen again. But there could also be an element of I am going to make my potential enemies disappear unexpectedly, so that you know no one there, there's not going to be any kind of trail uh, that leads back to me from any kind of assassination attempt that I may make on uh, you know this idealistic prince who is, you know, threatening my power. Uh, so I am going to bribe these Fremorians with, uh, you know, something that they might find precious. Maybe even some of that fallen star, uh, might, might be a resource that's even desirable in the Feywilds. You know, I can give them, uh, chunks of fallen star if they go and kidnap, this, uh, particular person who I find troublesome and just, you know, do, do whatever you want to with them, but just get them out of this plane, make them go away.
0: That, uh, I was thinking of a question and you, uh, and you, you answered it quite handily is, uh, you know, how, how would denizens of the Feywild view, view these, um, these magic shards and, uh, Yeah, I I don't see why they wouldn't covet them just as much as everyone else. Maybe for different reasons. Maybe members of the Aladrin courts think of them as, you know, nice trinkets that that convey status. Maybe there's a sort of corollary to the um, artificer uh, faction uh, in the Feywild, but they have their own reasons for for doing it, and maybe, yeah, maybe the darker areas of the Feywild, they want it for their own sort of uh, uh, struggles against, you know, wh- whoever else in the Feywild is 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 bothering them.
1: Something that just randomly popped into my head, just to give, and, and I think of this as, you know, giving the Feywild another way to contrast it with the material world in your setting. If the material world is very low magic... Mm-hmm. Uh, Obviously, by its very nature, the Feywild is going to be high magic. What if these star shards in the Feywild can be used to power some kind of uh, techno-organic technology? Like, they've got something that, you know, maybe to our modern human eyes would resemble a spaceship or something like that. But it's, you know, it's very... It's made out of organic material like a like a I'm thinking of like automatons that look like uh, treants almost. And and these these armies of, uh, you know, mechanized tree warriors uh, that these barons in the Feywild are using to wage war against each other are powered by these star shards. That that might be a way to make them have value in the Feywild
0: that that sounds just like the sort of <laughs> like borderline preposterous and fickle things that that immortal creatures would get up to is making these these outlandish creations um <laughs> uh, because you know <laughs> why not um, I mean another thought that just occurred to me which is why I love these chats so much is because... Or just you know, you can create Lord Sarcon the One-Eye just out of thin air, and I I have to piggyback off of your great ideas. But uh, is is if they use them to make their structures, because part of me, or or one idea that I want to work towards in in the the latter parts of this campaign, uh, the Warlock is not wanting to be in his pact anymore, and he's he's trapped basically with the deal that he made. So he's a very reluctant warlock, and um, the fiend eventually wants to sort of put a foothold, like a hellish foothold, into the Feywild, and so will release the warlock from his pact if if he sort of, you know, gets gets a gets one of these shards into a certain part of the Feywild where the the fiend can take hold and sort of spread his uh, evil influence from there. So it makes sense if like that's how you start to build structures or cities is is with this stuff. The, what I really want to end up have happen is is for the I like my dilemmas, so I want to present that that choice. Of course, the Eladrin would be very much opposed to to having this happen in the Feywild. So I wanted to to have the the Warlock have this choice and to refuse, and for the. The fiend then to try to essentially kill the warlock but in doing so breaks the pact and for the warlock to gain a new pact with uh the archfey at that point um for for doing something to protect the feywild that's just sort of that's just sort of a my long-term game plan which the warlock player has no idea that that's where i'm trying to take this but uh that's part of part of my mo is to have some end game plan and have some way to work backwards from that. the
1: the The good thing about you know having something like these star shards in the game is you know you, you have Hitchcock's MacGuffin, you have the thing everyone wants, and and so at this point you know it, it makes sense. If, you know, the humans can use them in, in some way as to, you know, make these magic weapons uh, and and in the Feywild, you know, they're thinking, oh, those humans with their primitive toys that don't even know half of what this thing can do, uh, maybe there's an even deeper layer to it with the, you know, the fiend that this warlock has made a pact with, you know, the... the the foolish fae and the even more foolish humans barely you know rubbing sticks together to make fire they don't know the half of what these things truly are um and this could lead to you know the nature of what these star shards actually are you know are these meteors uh bits of some kind of a deceased demon lord that somehow have transported their way into the material world, and you know his his body holds great power because he was truly the most powerful demon lord of his time. You know, is, is this is the like pieces of a titan? Uh, are these pieces of a planet that was once rich in magical? Um, you know, are are they? It, there's all kinds of different things that you could get into using these uh, meteors as your thing that ties everything together. The the thing that everyone desires and using the meteor to create that tension between the warlock and his patron uh, is, is definitely doable and, and definitely something that there, there's a lot of material to mine just with that, that storyline in place.
0: Can I, can I, be sort of a jerk and spring something on you. Then, absolutely, let's All go right. for it. So, something that I had had pitched to the DM, uh, the Dungeon Master group in Facebook was was creating a a new monstrous race uh, to use because uh, Matt and Sarah are very well read, shall we say, in in the monster manual. So, I feel like if I say you encounter some orcs. They're not going to be super afraid. Or you can counter some hobgoblins and be like, okay, we know what the deal is. Um, so I was wanting to make up something that is n- new to scare them. And um, Andrew Kolb had given me a few pointers, a, a few a few jumping off points. Because um, I wanted to have, like, I really did want to include hobgoblins because I've never used them before and they seem super cool to me. But he, he sort of, made the suggestion of having... And I wanted to have this sort of mysterious group. I just didn't know how they fit in. Um, And I guess that's another point of, like, when you're doing world building, if you don't know where where your stuff fits in, you know, don't try to force it in, I guess, is a a good rule of thumb. But to have this faction of mysterious humanoids uh, that people generally don't encounter very often, they're sort of fearsome very you know, generally hermetic uh but largely dangerous and potentially hostile a lot of the time uh and i was like well maybe they were something else before and then you know many generations ago there was this uh these these magical shards that fell down and maybe they were very unstable or a different kind of magic that ended up transmuting or warping these maybe they were orcs or maybe they were hobgoblins but now they, you know, they're sort of misshapen, so they wear masks. They, they don't speak. They communicate telepathically, and so it kind of gives this, you know, would be I think eerie for players to encounter an enemy that they don't know what it looks like, they don't know what it sounds like. If let's let's say let's say we take hobgoblins, because I did want I I did want to include those because, like I said, I've never used them before, and they seem like fun. Like a militaristic society, all of a sudden is transformed by this magic stuff. To like to me, uh, they seem like they would have innate spellcasting to to start, uh, and and they I think would have an innate sense of where to find. Like once a once one of these shards comes down, you know they sort of have this radar that's always on, and so people, some people know that when this happens, these beings are drawn to them. And it's only a matter of time before they start showing up. So, with all that, with all my long winded rambling in mind, have you reskinned monsters before so that your players don't really know what they're fighting?
1: Yeah, I have. Uh, I've done that before. I did that with uh, Gith Yankee uh, in, in one of my games uh, because I wanted there to be like a demonic army. Just an army of red skin demons, but they, uh, you know, kind of look humanoid. They've got armor and weapons and stuff like that. And so I was looking through the monster manual. I came across the Githyanki, and I was like, okay, these these guys are cool. I like them in general. Uh, they've got their own cool thing going on here. Uh, but if I just kind of you know said instead of having green skin, they've got red skin, and they're you know they're demons uh then these become my my demon soldiers.
0: Oh, nice. That sounds simple enough. Uh in terms of the innate spellcasting, like do you think that there are certain spells or magical abilities that maybe go overlooked that work well for a I don't want to say an evil race, but like certainly a hostile force might use. Maybe they can levitate or maybe do some kind of, um, uh, what's that sp- like blur where they sort of pop in and out. What do you, what do you think?
1: One uh, one thing that you're definitely going to want to do to your players. Some people are going to think I'm absolutely the devil for bringing this up, especially with all the conversation we've had around uh, this being a low magic setting. Uh, these, these, Star-warped hobgoblins need to have resistance to non-magical piercing, bludgeoning, and slashing damage. Ooh, yes. I wouldn't go so far as to say outright immunity. There's there's a very evil part of my brain that says immunity, but at early levels, that's just going to make them impossible. So uh, they definitely need resistance, though. (laughs) done and then i mean as far as like innate spell casting the the drow model of you know like they can you know cast darkness or uh fairy fire seems like something that that would be very useful uh now like fairy fire mixed with kind of the the goblins uh i i don't think it's uh I think it's even beyond pack tactics, but there's some kind of like leadership ability that hobgoblins have where if they work as a unit, they're especially devastating. If you combine that with something like a, you know, a guiding bolt or a fairy fire that gives people advantage to attack, uh, you could have some very devastating uh, combinations there where a hobgoblin captain, you know, fairy fires one of the NPCs and suddenly they're a hell of a lot easier to hit.
0: Someone's been reading the monsters know what they're doing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank uh, you, Keith Obman.
0: Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that that all sounds very, very enticing. And honestly, none of that had even occurred to me. I was just thinking like, what what kind of... Stuff could freak out the players i you know the the tactical that's like an awesome tactical uh assessment of of how they could use their innate powers um to really just deal the hurt i I like to impose conditions is there you know doing damage doing damage is great I love doing damage no one loves doing more damage than I do, but uh I like to have conditions because it really it really changes the, the nature of, the, of an encounter. Like once you get some, you know, one or more players suffering conditions. So I, I've already, you know, got fear built into like one of the chief antagonists. So maybe I'll avoid that one, even though it might make sense. But um, having even having them be able to cast like blindness or deafness would, uh, you know, would throw them for a, a bit of a curve
1: people sleep on the blinded condition it's um it, this is something i noticed uh just from having a a character now who can cast shadow of moil on himself you know wh- whenever whenever your character is obscured the person that you're attacking uh basically acts as if they have uh, the blinded condition and for anyone who doesn't know in 5e blinded creatures can't see they automatically fail any ability check that requires sight attack rolls against them have advantage and their attack rolls have disadvantage so if you can blind a player or if you can um create something that obscures the uh yeah (laughs) yes not blind a player (laughs) (laughs) but yes if you can if you can blind all
0: right i'm good i'm good
1: (laughs) but how are you going to play D &D without your eyes (laughs) oh boy but anyway if you can if you can blind a player character Basically, the world is your oyster at that point as far as dealing damage to them. Stunned is similar, you know, whereas blinded, they can attack, uh, but they're at disadvantage. Stunned, they can't do anything. Uh, restrained, I would generally avoid restrained. It's actually, uh, it's it's not as great as you might think it is. Actually, restrained's better than grappled, uh, but still blinded and uh stunned or kind of the the most powerful there so yeah having something that does that to a player uh would definitely definitely kind of kind of put fear in their hearts uh or or something that can deal a level of exhaustion to them might also be be an interesting situation there cuz then you know it's there until they rest
0: yes I feel like exhaustion is very um at least at least in the games that I've experienced, very underutilized. Yeah, I mean this is this is a, a wealth of ideas here that uh I mean I feel like these I feel like this group of enemies has really started to take shape. Just just in this conversation here. Uh I think this has been like incredibly helpful for me and hopefully people listening have found it helpful as well.
1: Um, do you want to talk at all about beholders or do you wanna save that?
0: Talk about bearing the lead um yeah, so uh we've been i've been pretty i guess um you know reserved up until now about about talking about it but yeah the the chief antagonist uh of the campaign is a beholder who has been uh talking to some talking talking to some folks almost like uh cthulhu whispers to to susceptible minds and has convinced a few um convinced a few people to summon it from the far realm um the players will encounter it not sorry not encounter the beholder but will interrupt the summoning ritual in the first session and the interruption will send the beholder While it does arrive, it will send the Beholder into a sort of deep hibernation as a result of the botched summoning. And as a result, the Beholder is having some pretty whack-ass dreams that the player characters and those involved in the summoning are caught up in. So I apparently have a thing for aberrations, um, Mind flares being in the previous campaign and now Beholders. Uh, I had this concept when I had read, or yeah, I think read that uh, when a Beholder d- dreams, it can warp the very fabric of reality around it. So uh, Ryan, what are your thoughts on Beholders? Like one of the most iconic monsters in all of D&D.
1: Beholders are my favorite D&D monster, hands down. Because they're so odd and unique and there's really nothing like a beholder they have these super powerful crazy eye beams they're crazy intelligent uh but they also don't work well with others because they're super egotistical uh you know i i think one of the best uh villains of kind of the the Meta-narrative of D&D itself, what little there is now, uh, at least in the Forgotten Realms, is Xanathar. Xanathar is awesome. One of my favorite D&D villains of all time. Uh, I I like him even better than I like uh, Vecna. Sorry, all you Vecna fans out there, I think Xanathar's cooler. Yeah, the, the the reason I love beholders so much, and I love aberrations as a whole, the the same way that that you mentioned having a, a thing for aberrations there. It it's because we don't know where aberrations come from. Aberrations, just kind of by their description, are otherworldly, even beyond the realms of you know D and D, and so in my mind, I always. Think aberrations are from space. Aberrations are the space aliens of D anD. d And I mean, some of them. It, it's quite an easy connection when you know when you think about mind flayers and Githyanki, literally having spaceships and stuff like that. But I like to lump beholders in with that and and all the other aberrations. You know, th- these are creatures that come from another world. They are alien to this material plane and with this established uh meteor thing that keeps happening I feel like you have a good way to tie in some kind of aberration or some kind of otherworldly thing maybe it's possible that these meteors are some there there's some kind of residue of an attempt by these beholders to you know enter the material world and that's why these meteor showers keep happening every time one happens it's a, it's a beholder trying to break the plane and and come to this new world and so you know having a beholder also be central to this world where everyone is after these meteor shards i think just gives you another kind of wealth of opportunities to tie these two things together and maybe it's just you know my obsession with beholders being from space talking there but i i honestly think uh those two things can easily be linked together and the beholder can end up being if not the source of the meteors then an indication of the source
0: i think you've you've now suggested probably four or five different uh different options for like the origins and like the nature of these these um Meteorites, which which is amazing. Um, and I I was listening to a podcast called Mo- Monsters and Multiclass, uh, where each episode they talk about a different multiclass, whether or not it works. But they also talk about a different monster. It's, it's it's pretty entertaining. They were talking in in the one episode they were talking about beholders, and I was listening to that to prepare for this campaign. And they were saying that they don't think a CR, what is it, CR thirteen? I think for the for your standard beholder they said that that is not high enough for for an actual beholder fight because of of how they suggest that you run it where a beholder layer is um a beholder is going to have carved out a number of escape tunnels for itself it's probably going to stay high up so unless your party can fly or has like some really good range stuff that are Probably not going to be able to touch it very easily with with that being said, with the beholder being your favorite, like have you have you run beholder encounters before?
1: Yeah, yeah, I've run a few beholder encounters before. I have resisted going for the throat as far as beholders go because of the kind of the circumstances in which I've unleashed the beholder upon people. Um, one of them, I took one of the lesser beholders from Volo's guide. And uh, had it show up in a game I was running for my parents and my sisters. Uh, So I wasn't going to try and TPK them because it was their first time playing. But I I do see where they're coming from, talking about how a CR 13 might be a little bit low because theoretically the beholder never has to touch the ground And, you know, they can use whatever I-beam they want that's, you know, in the stat block. You don't have to roll randomly for it if you don't want to. You you could deal some serious damage with beholders, and they're certainly smart enough to have their own escape tunnels as well. Um, You could easily, even if you're going, well, if you're going up to level 20 at that point... Uh, A Beholder probably can't be your ultimate endgame boss unless you're, you know, have minions and are doing some other kind of crazy stuff that powers up the Beholder. Because once you get to level 20, uh, especially if there's a paladin in your party, you're stupid powerful. (laughs) Um, 20th level paladins in 5th edition, you just cannot stop them. There's just something about all their different contingencies against undead and demons. Uh, You know, all all the things they can do, the save bonuses they give to the party. If you're going to 20th level in a campaign with paladins, you're going to have to do some serious, like, how do I murder these players to get around all the stuff that a 20th level paladin can do. But yeah, Beholder's beholders are giant intellects with ray guns that can kill things instantly so yeah it's it's easy to set them up to really go for the throat and really give your players a nightmare
0: yes and speaking of nightmares the the players will be caught up in this dream uh the beholder wants these these um bits of of meteorite for its own for its own purposes and um i've sort of thought of this like edge of tomorrow type scenario where the beholder needs beholder can't act directly because it's hibernating but its subconscious is affecting the world and so the minions that were in its immediate vicinity are in the dream as well as are the player characters So it needs its followers to get these meteorites. And when the... So for an example, if we're in sort of one, let's call it like a dream arc, if there's three shards that come down and the player characters get two, the Beholder would dream of another instance of of the starfall coming down to give its minions another chance to get enough of the stuff. And so this kind of has the the effect of like powering up the party but also powering up the bad guys at the same time repeatedly. And every time the dream restarts, you know, there's a different sort of you know, the the, the reality is a bit different. And eventually the player characters will have to find out what exactly is happening. I still haven't figured out that part. I haven't figured out what is going to be the event that tells them precisely what's happening? And maybe it will be that they beat the minions enough times that the beholder, uh, <laughs> the beholder says, maybe maybe these ones will be more useful because they seem to be more competent. That's that's still something that I have to figure out.
1: And, and Volos mentions this when beholders sleep, their minds don't turn off that's how they're able to warp reality so it does make sense for you know this beholder to constantly be having these scenarios play out where his minions can can get what they need to wake him up um and as they continuously fail to do so if the players are able to you know stop them at that point it makes sense for the beholder to kind of kind of like inception where the resistance to what they're doing increases the deeper they go. You know, he he has his own kind of mental defenses that end up beefing up uh, as they continue to thwart his plans. And then you you could build to that offer of look, you've beaten my minions six ways from Sunday. Why don't you guys just wake me up and I'll give you double what I was going to give them?
0: It sounds it sounds entirely in keeping with uh, the the type of 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 deal that the beholder would make now i've i still feel like even though it would be offering them something it would probably be doing it in a very demeaning way
1: <laughs> yes you you pea-brained meat sacks are are clever for pea-brained meat sacks so uh you know i will i will deign to give you all of your wildest dreams because that is but a drop in the bucket to my mighty intellect <laughs>
0: Okay, I'm just gonna write down pea brained Meat Sack. Okay, gonna use that for sure. Um and yeah, just uh just to jump back to something that you said earlier about the the sort of allure of not only beholders but aberrations and and you know, like like starspawn I really wanted to use as well, but they just didn't fit into this world. But uh when there's an opportunity for a dungeon master to to take like an out from having to do extra work it's always a boon and with aberrations you can say if the player characters are trying to like figure out why this thing works the way that it does you don't have to give them an answer because they just don't know and it they maybe they can't know and i think that's that's something really Interesting with these alien creatures is that there's the unknown factor of it is like part of part of the allure. It's something with like uh like the alien movies, particularly the first one, is like very frightening because you just didn't know like there was there was such mystery and and so few answers around this this creature like because you can never fully understand it there's always that element of of fear and an unease with it and i think that, that is always a great storytelling aspect that i like particularly with with horror and cosmic horror of like never never really having answers never really truly knowing um, but in terms of being a dungeon master having that ability to say well you don't know you can't know you don't have to explain this to your players. It is the way it is because they're from this crazy place that mortals can't understand. It's like, if the Feywild is a mirror of the material plane, then the Far Realm is like orders of magnitude different. It has, like, there's no corollary. There's no there's no analogs.
1: You can throw them into something similar to... I, I don't know how familiar you are with the Half-Life franchise, but you could throw them into something similar to like a zen situation where it seems to come completely out of left field everything there is you know foreign and dangerous and alien there's no real explanation as to you know what it is or, or how these things came to be but it's just this nightmare world that these evil things come from
0: was that at the end of the first game where if you choose wrong, then the, the G-Man sends you to the alien world? And Yes. Okay, yes. I, I did not make the wrong choice at the end of uh, Half-Life. I was like, no way, I'm not going. <laughs> Sorry, just give me the good ending. Um, yeah, so we will see. We will see what happens with, with the Beholder, with the Fiend, with the Feywild. Um, hopefully I don't botch it and uh i'll be doing more of these behind the screen episodes as time goes on and if i'm lucky um maybe i can
1: twist ryan's arm to join me for for a couple more of them in the future oh i i am always down for stuff like this i i love just talking about the creative process behind role playing games and and sitting here and coming up with all kinds of crazy stuff, uh, while we talk about these ideas. This, this is one of my favorite ways to pass time. I I love it. So anytime you want to do it, just let me know.
0: Absolutely. We'll take you up on that. Um, so thank you again for, for setting aside this time, uh, to talk. Uh, and as I said before, everybody should be listening to rolling bones with Ryan Howard. Um, I listened to it on, uh, Spotify, but where where else can people find yourself? Because you also do the podcast and you do Twitch. Um, so wh- where should people look for your content, Ryan?
1: Yeah, so like Tim said, we do two live shows a week at twitch.tv slash rollin' bones, Ryan. And what those you know two weekly streams are, Monday nights at 8 p.m., that's Rollin' bones. Usually that's an interview show. Uh, recently with the holiday season upon us i've been doing a lot of solo episodes just kind of you know ranting about stuff like this i did a whole episode on star wars recently that's out now Um, and then on saturday mornings at 9 a.m central time i do what i call danishes and dragons which is an rpg morning show where I'm either playing a uh, you know D and D related RPG video game or I'm talking about some kind of game or you know concept within role playing games, but I also have breakfast and talk about my favorite breakfast foods.
0: Yes, I I, re- I remember pitching you the idea of coffee and kobolds, but Danishes and Dragons uh, objectively is a is a far better name, uh, and you can watch Ryan down. What I imagine is probably a gallon of coffee right before your very eyes, as if it's water. It's it's truly incredible.
1: 32 ounces of coffee every single morning. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I have a problem. I honestly do.
0: <laughs> I didn't think it was possible to be caffeinated by uh, what I can call visual osmosis, but, uh, but every time I see you do that, I... I get a little jittery
1: (laughs) and I don't think my energy level changes all that much. I seem to be at kind of a constant energy level with a couple noted exceptions, namely when like hell no Mandalorian's on or I get angry about something. My energy level seems to go up. Uh, But for the most part, I'm just kind of at this energy level at all times and the coffee just kind of fuels me. <laughs> One day, I'm
0: convinced we will see Ryan uh, essentially do the thing where where he is moving in fast motion and saving people from a burning building uh, like Fry and Futurama after his 99th uh, coffee or, or however many he had in that uh, episode. I can't recall, but uh, we will see. I, I, I'm sure... It will be in the headlines one day. And if that's not enough to sell you on Danish the Dragons, then I, I don't know what else I can say.
1: One thing I want to say just about kind of my content. For anyone who misses the live shows, uh, we do upload the videos on YouTube. That's Roland Bones on YouTube. You can find them there. And like Tim said, we do an audio version of the Monday show uh Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, the interview show, the flagship show. And that's available on pretty much any major podcatcher. I also have a website uh, which is Rollin'Bonespodcast.com where you can find uh, you know updates anytime a new episode goes up.
0: Awesome. All right. Ryan, thank you again. I think we've we've covered more here than I thought we would, which is incredible because I Thought that we would cover quite a bit and we've exceeded my wildest expectations. And if I somehow lose this recording, I will walk into the forest never to be seen again.